for the news. Um, we're not going to get to Jeremiah 34, but he's going to talk in there that as Babylon is sweeping in and conquering Jerusalem, the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem, against the cities of Judah that were left, because they were conquering one by one, and against Lachish and against Ezekah. For these defense cities remained for the cities of Judah. They were kind of the last ones remaining. Okay. Well, here's what they discovered this week. As they were looking at some pottery shards that they're finding in Jerusalem. Ebor Gripping is a tale told by perhaps the, the most known pottery shard from the period which was found in Lachish, the largest Judite city after Jerusalem. Uh, and in, on this pot, pottery shard, it says in the dispatch, an official station outside the city reports to his commander on the fall of the nearby stronghold, saying that we can see the signals from Lachish, but we no longer see Ezekiel. So this pottery shard is telling the story kind of in real time. This is like a, a news story uh, that this, as the cities are falling and they're recording that this is what they're seeing. Um, scholars have taken this as a confirmation of the biblical narrative of Jeremiah, which recounts that Azekah and Lachish were the last fortresses of Judah to fall before Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed after Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II. Okay? So often what happens in, when we get into uh, Israelite history is that there are large groups of people, primarily a lot of the Palestinians who are really invested in trying to make sure that the Jews don't have a history there. And so they kind of poo-poo anything that sounds biblical because really the Palestinians are the, have always owned this land and, and the Jews were never there. You know, and, um, so when things like this come up, it always stirs up lots of controversy that says, no, they were there, and the Bible is really true. Uh, so, anyway, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Now, I want to kind of get started. Sometimes when we're looking at the Scriptures, you kind of have to look at it against the backdrop, look at the larger story, and then it really kind of makes sense. So one of the largest archetypes that is always out there, by the way, what's an archetype? We know. Just throw that word out. You know the archetypes. Hey, what, what's an archetype? It's a pattern, and it's a general pattern. Okay, and you will. And if it's an archetype, you will see it uh, across stories. You will see it across histories. You'll see it across civilizations. It's the, It's a mega pattern. Does that make sense? Uh, and to give you one, one of the oldest archetypes is, is the one that has sometimes been called the hero's journey. And to start where we start at home, we're going to go out into the wilderness where we're either kicked out of our house or we go voluntarily out on our journey. We go out, we go through this wilderness experience and then, and then we come back, we return back home. Okay? Wilderness experiences like what? What would be an examples of this one? Coming to Earth. That's, that's probably the underneath all of these archetypes. The plan of salvation where we're going to leave Heavenly Father, come down, come to this wilderness experience, and then come back is probably the underlying one of all. But where else? The what? The prodigal son went out, goes through this experience, comes to himself, and in this case he leaves the Father voluntarily 
Not for righteous purposes, just because he wants freedom. Okay, perfect. What else? Lots of literature. Like in literature, like where? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yep. Lots of the Greek. Yep. Missions are wilderness experiences. We're going to go from our home. We're going to go out. We're going to do things. Now, one of the ways that I can always tell wilderness experiences is that we will go out and we will do things like going off to college. We'll have these experiences, and then we come back and we try and explain to people where we were, and they go, well, that sounds nice. (laughs) Think about the last time you went on a really great vacation. Let's say like you go out on a cruise and you had this great experience, and it was just awesome. And then you come back off the cruise, and you go to your friend. Wow, you should have seen the stuff we were doing, and we were, you know, swimming with turtles and stuff like that. And they go, "Oh, that's nice." Yeah. <laughs> They're just you get that whenever you come back, or or kids come back from their missions, and they've had these great experiences, and everybody's still doing the same thing at home that they were doing when they left. Okay. This, But it's the wilderness experiences that change us. The Savior went out into the wilderness, had experiences before he came back and started his ministry, didn't he? Father Lehi is going to go out into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Okay, You just see these stories. Huckleberry Finn. It's always this. Go out. Go away from my, from my comfort. Go out into the wilderness and come back changed. That's the archetype. Does that make sense? Now, sometimes we're in our home and, we, and we, it wasn't our choice to leave. <laughs> we get kicked out of our home and have the wilderness experience and then come back. For instance, ba- yeah, the Babylonian captivity, which is where we're going. And the, and the Lord kept saying, I, if you're not going to be changed while you're home, I will send you out into the wilderness where wilderness changes people and you will come back and be different. And that's really what we're about to talk about today, was this, the Babylonian captivity. Because we've been reading all through Isaiah. Isaiah kept saying, you're going to have to leave. Righteous get together, or wicked get scattered. And you're going to have to leave. And they go, no, we're not. We're really righteous. We're keeping the law of Moses. That'll keep us safe. No, you're going to have to leave. No, we're not. And, and ultimately in here, we get this experience. So... So just to give you a little bit of history, uh, I don't want you to have to memorize this or anything, but you just you can see marching down, uh, 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar commences, uh, uh, March 5th, uh, what's not listed here is they defeat the Egyptians, uh, they capture Joachim, uh, they kill him, they, they put another one on the throne, he leaves Jerusalem. Uh, 596 of June he's only going to serve for three months as king he captures him and then he will place on they will march into Jerusalem they will do a couple of things one they will kill the king they will put on the throne Matthias Matthias, who will take the king name of Zechariah or Zedekiah King Zedekiah Um, and then the Babylonians do an interesting thing they're going to take the flower of Israel. They will take the princes and, uh, and bright young men and scholars and artisans and all of these things. They're going to gather them all up and they're going to haul them off to Babylon. And uh, so, for instance, in this, in this gathering together of all of the, 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 the flower of Jerusalem, they're going to take 
Daniel, and they're going to take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're going to take Ezekiel, and all of these people are going to be hauled off to Babylon. Okay? Which means that those that are left aren't all that hot, right? <laughs> huh? Except for when they're going through all of this, they, they start opening up prisons, and who do they find? Wallowing around in prison. Jeremiah. Okay? So they're going to haul them off, and it's in this first year after everybody's been hauled off that the Lord will call another prophet to step in and start preaching to the people, and that prophet's name is Lehi. Lehi begins to preach in the very first year uh, after the Babylonians have already taken off everybody to Babylon. Uh, and here's Lehi, and now he's going to start to preach. So now we are, we're now bridging right to the Book of Mormon, because this is right at that moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it kind of all... Well, see, that's what, the fascinating thing for me is that Laman and Lemuel, you know, the Whiny brothers, through this whole thing, are going to keep going... Well, Jerusalem can never be conquered. Jerusalem is righteous. Jerusalem will be strong. No, Jerusalem's already been conquered. The city still stands. Well, they did. They they would have seen it. Now, but it still hasn't been destroyed. The city won't be destroyed for another 10 years. Because what will happen is Zedekiah is going to choose to... He's now a vassal state of Babylon. Zedekiah is going to suck up to the Egyptians and try and make an alliance with the Egyptians over the over Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, don't do it, don't do it. No, I want to be with the Egyptians. He sucks up to the Egyptians. Uh, Babylonians have to come back. They will defeat the Egyptians again. And then they will level and burn Jerusalem to the ground, including the temple. That's ten years away. And it's in this period of time, this ten-year period, that Lehi is called, Lehi preaches, Lehi and the family leave. They spend eight years wandering down through the desert. So it's not long after they get on the boat, probably in at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula to leave, that up north, Nebuchadnezzar is now leveling Jerusalem. And that's why they get to the new land, and it's revealed to Lehi that Jerusalem is now destroyed. Okay? So these things are all happening concurrently. Yeah? Yeah. It is. A, it's a. It's a great parallel. We went to. We went to Boston a year and a half ago. We love going through, and looking at all the history, and then we've been reading a couple of uh, Revolutionary War books. And that's exactly right. The Boston Tea Party was about the fact that they could not buy tea from anybody else except the London Tea Company 
from England. You can't buy it from France. You can't buy it from anywhere else. And then we kept breaking that. So this is a really good parallel to that. Okay. Now, one of the ways that we know about a lot about the Babylonians was that they were prolific writers. Babylonians wrote a lot. And so we have uh, a lot of Babylonian writings uh, in cuneiforms and that, that are available to us. And they, in fact, they are... They are so. Uh, they were so prolific in in the fact that they're writing that some of their stuff can actually be had uh, today. So, for instance, one of the things that you can actually go out and purchase these days. Uh, they're not cheap, but they are available, and that are Babylonian seals. And that is the, these little seals where they would create a rock and then they would carve into it, and then you run it across clay. Uh, so last time my friend was in uh, Jerusalem, I had him pick up for me a Babylonian seal. Uh, and it and this particular seal, you're not going to be able to see it very well. I'll, I'll pass it around. Um, is somewhere between uh, 1,700 and 3,000 years old. Most of the Babylonian seals I'm looking are kind of in that range. When I've run it across clay, it turned out I didn't know. I didn't know when the last person was that ever got to see what was on this seal. So when I ran it across clay, it's a children's seal, and there is a little butterfly on there, and there is a palm tree. Uh, and some kind of creatures and stuff on there. But this is, uh, like I said, this is a Babylonian seal, but it's the same kind of writing that you're going to see on here, only they were doing it with pictographs. Okay? All right, so there is Babylonian seal. Um, too bad it's going to be a little dark. You're not going to be able to see it very well. I'm hoping to get it made into something where you, where you can see it a little bit easier. Okay, now, one last thing. Uh, Babylon, the Babylonians, uh, this was called the Ishtar Gate. And the Ishtar Gate is, uh, they actually found when, uh, when uh, I think it was British and German archaeologists actually found the ruins of the Ishtar Gate and they started digging around, they actually found the crumbled Ishtar Gate. They took it back to Berlin and they reassembled it. So this is the actual Ishtar Gate through which Daniel would have passed and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as the Jews were being hauled off. And you can see it in a museum in Berlin. Anybody seen that? Anybody been there? Pretty impressive? Yeah. Yeah. But to give you some idea, th these are some the, the, the uh, some of their uh, idols are carved on here. Uh, one of them is Melech, the, the one that, the, the, the uh, one we talked about where they would sacrifice kids on a, on a uh, uh, hollow, glowing, hot, Statue, and then they would burn them alive. On there, okay, so that is the issue. Yeah, yeah, that's that was their form. I think that's because I think the, the German archaeologists that were finding it. Remember back then, it used to be that because it was in Iraq, and and a lot of times, uh, if you were English and you were in kind of going through the pyramids of Egypt. They hauled them all back to England. We, we, for years and years and years, Europe didn't leave things in the Middle East when they would, when they would find them. They would take them back to civilization, so they could put them in museums. We're making money off of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. So now we're going to charge to come see this thing, whether it's mummies or whatever it is. Okay. All right. So. So here they are, kind of rendition of the. Uh, the, the Babylonians are now going into captivity and they're going to go through the Ishtar Gate. 
uh, into Babylon. Uh, now, so let's go ahead and turn to uh, Jeremiah 29. Now let me mention one other thing before we get started. I want you to, first of all, hop all the way down to verse 24. Let me set it up this way. Um, when, when, Joseph, when Joseph the prophet was killed in Nauvoo, during Carthage, uh, false prophets began to show up. And there was one by the name of James Strange. And James Strange had joined the church in March 1844. Uh, Joseph was killed in June. He starts having revelations. And James Strange just keeps kicking out these revelations. And his revelations keep landing on the saints even as far as winter quarters. They're camped out. They're freezing in winter quarters. And here's come these revelations from James Strange and the Strangeites. Uh, perfect name. Um, <laughs> that's the coming down to the saints in winter quarters and saying, join us rather than go on this fool's errand all the way out to the, to the Wasatch Mountains. Come with us up to Wisconsin. It's warmer. <laughs> <laughs> and but but he's sending out revelations to them, and it's confusing because they were used to getting revelations from Joseph. Brigham Young isn't producing a whole lot of revelations, and so that was prob and that was probably his letters to the saints that prompted section one thirty six of the Doctrine and Covenants, the only revelation we have from Brigham Young in the in the Doctrine and Covenants to offset the the false ones that were going out there. Well, guess what? When the when the uh, when Judah is hauled off to Babylon, they have their own false prophets, and these guys, while they're in captivity, are living a pretty civilized life. This wasn't a take them out, put them in chains, and live as slaves. They're actually uh, commuting back or uh, communicating back and forth with those that remain in Jerusalem, um, and and part of it was we had a couple of prophets. Uh, thus spake uh, uh, Shemaniah. The, the uh, Nehomite. Uh, now, in my research, uh, Shemaniah was a, was a false prophet. Nehomite is a dreamer. And so it's, it's uh, Jeremiah kind of poking fun at it. There's no such people as uh, the Nehomites other than these are the dreamers. In other words, you're crazy. Okay? Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, because thou hast sent letters in thy name unto the people that are here at Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, to the priests and all the priests, saying that the Lord has made thee priest instead of the priest, that you should be officers in the house of the Lord, for every man that is bad, and make a prophet, should put us in prison and in stocks. So, so there, these false prophets are saying... Anybody who says that they're a prophet and not us, put them in prison and put them in stocks, which is what they did with Jeremiah. Jeremiah would get out of prison and then put him back in. Then he'd get out again and then put him back in. And, uh, and they're saying, no, we're the real prophets. Uh, and the Lord is going is to say to them... Uh, verse 31, Thus saith the Lord unto you... Uh, because Shemaniah has prophesied to you, and I sent him not, 
and he caused you to trust in a lie. 32, I will punish him and his seed, that he shall not have a man to dwell among this people, uh, neither shall he behold the good I will do for my people, because he hath taught rebellion against the Lord. And then he'll go on to say, and you guys will be dead. <laughs> okay? Now, I was thinking about this earlier. Um, that there is another parallel to this kind of thing, and it's the, it's the part that always hurts for me. when I The struggle that, that somebody in the church these days has when a relative or especially a spouse leaves the church, so they're still in the church, and they have a disbelieving spouse that was a believer and now he's not. And the, and the biggest cause of pain for them is who when that happens? Their kids. And that is the outflow that happens when I've got kids that struggle to go to church. My husband left the church. Now he talked them all into not leaving, not going to church. So it is the, it's the, it's the residual damage that comes. When, when a person decides to leave the church, they rarely do it alone. They will either take a spouse, family members. They will plant doubt in other people. And that's part of why the damage of a false prophet who says, Thus saith the Lord, or you guys are mad, you guys are crazy. That's the real damage. That's the problem. And I think that's part of what was happening here. Okay? So, let's go back up to verse 1 then. So, balancing off all these letters from, from these false prophets. Here he comes. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent to Jerusalem to the residual of the elders which were carried away captive. Those that were the, the flower of Judah and to the priests and prophets uh, to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive. Okay? Now, what, what is he going to say to them? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto, unto Babylon. Now listen to this counsel. I, I, I love this. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. You know, you're kind of expecting, well, wait a minute, there's going to be this great, powerful, here comes this revelation from God, and he's saying basically, build houses. Yes, isn't that what he's saying? Keep living. Live your life. Uh, I think that's similar. My, my pioneer uh, grandfather, uh, who, uh, after they left Nauvoo, and he came back to... He came to, to Utah with Mormon Battalion and all that, and then ultimately he ends up in Rexburg. He, it, was, it wasn't until the year before his death, in 1900, that he said in his journal, I guess we're not going back to Missouri. And that he knew people that every morning, they, once they got to Utah, they would set up their, uh, their team and point it back towards Missouri because today will be the day that we're going back to Missouri. Today we're leaving. And I can't remember which one of the brethren, President, maybe you remember, that they asked him what he would do and he says, I'm still planting apple trees. In other words, we're going to live. We're going to move forward in our lives. We're not just going to kind of sit here in misery. We keep planting. We keep building houses and planting gardens. 
Well, think about the, the times that you've gone through rough periods and tribulations. Isn't that pretty good counsel? When it just looks like there's no hope, he says, build houses, plant gardens, uh, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that ye may be increased and not diminished. And seek the peace. Well, okay, let's stop for a second. You have been carried away from your home through Zedekiah's stupidness and the king's stupidness and everything. But there you are. You're in captivity. How do you find peace in captivity? Do what now? Make things good for yourself. First of all, you're going to do some of the simple things. Take care of yourself. How else do you find peace in captivity? Do what? Help other people. Yeah, I like that one. You're going to start reaching out. You're not going to give up on who you worship uh, so that you maintain that connection to the Lord. I like that one. You're going to recreate where you were. If you had houses there, let's recreate it here. In other words, we're not going to abandon our lives. Yeah, yeah. That's what immigrants did when they came to the United States. They they brought the old things with them and and made their home here like they had it. Mm-hmm. You, you look at if you go down to the go down to the hill country and you see all the the effects of the German immigrants yeah. to uh, South Texas and they were just going to create and they were going to create it make it like home. Mm-hmm. Okay. In a sense, don't we kind of do that in our own homes? We have, been, we have been carried away from our home, haven't we? In the pre-existence. And what are we supposed to do here? Build our home. Build a, build a replica of the pre-existence in our home. We're in captivity. Isn't that exactly what we're doing now? Is building, making the earth, we're supposed to be trying to make the earth like heaven. We are supposed to be making the earth like heaven. And that comes with homes and gardens and marrying Okay? Sometimes we get stuck. Well, I'm in captivity. Yes, you are. You may be in financial captivity, or you may be in mourning captivity, or you may be, you're going through a lot of captivity. It seems like you're being hemmed in, and he's saying, move forward in your life. Plant apple trees that take a long time to grow. Yeah, keep the generations going. Don't hold up. Yeah, I, I still remember. I still remember the conference after 9/11, and we'd gone through all of the trauma of 9/11. And it's like here comes October conference, and man, we need conference this time because we need to find out what we're supposed to do and where are we going because the world has fallen apart and the second coming maybe next year, and we're all set. And I remember we all settled in to watch general conference. What are we going to hear from the brethren? And they said, I oh, don't know. Keep the commandments. <laughs> You know, uh, serve. Uh, I don't remember hardly any of them in that October conference even addressing that 9-11 had ever happened. Yeah, there's some tribulation, but keep the commandments, go to the temple, do your callings, pray. And we, said, and we kept going, yeah, but this is what we heard in April. Before 9-11, and October sounds an awful lot like April. 
Uh-huh. And they tend to get the others in the family riled up. Sure. Yeah, and so even when we have talked about the, the importance of self-reliance and we need to get up our food storage, there's nothing in there that says, quick, wipe out your entire 401k and get all your food today because you're going to need it tomorrow. I mean, don't do it in haste. Don't do it in crazy, but common sense, move forward, but find peace in this captivity. Don't, don't do it frenetically. And we want to do that. We want to react. I, I just think that... now. What else is he going to say to these guys? Well, oh, by the way, so what else should you do? Build houses, marry your kids off, plant gardens, and by the way, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you. Now, if we are in the midst of captivity, and it feels like our life is in captivity, are we more vulnerable? To somebody coming along that's going to try and scare us, try and stir stuff up. Sure, because we are when we believe we're in captivity, we also tend to be desperate. And so we're going to be more ripe for somebody to come along and we're going to get these false revelations to try and get us stirred up. So he's saying, build houses, build gardens, marry your kids off, and don't listen to false prophets. Oh, okay. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. I have not sent them. And by the way, for thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. What happens... History buffs. What happens after 70 years? What's going to happen after 70 years? Babylon's going to be conquered by who? Cyrus. Yeah, remember back in, in uh, Isaiah, Isaiah said uh, the Lord prophesies about Cyrus. And Cyrus is going to be, uh, he's going to swoop in. They're going to attack Babylon. But gee, how do you attack the Babylonian Gate, the Ishtar Gate. This is a, like a great walled city. And you know how they did that? Just trivia-wise? Yes. The Euphrates. Remember, this is, this is Baghdad. The Euphrates flowed un, underneath the city. And so they kind of built this thing around where the water could flow underneath the, the city of Babylon. And that's where they got the Babylon Hanging Gardens and all the beauty that was Babylon. Okay, the water would flow across, so what uh, Cyrus did, they came in and they just blocked off the river. So the river stopped flowing and they just walked underneath and conquered Babylon. And then once they get in there and they find, wow, there's all of these 
there's all these people from Judah all crammed into this city and they're living here. And one of them, might have been Daniel, we don't know, is going to go to Cyrus and say, Can I read you a little Isaiah? Let me read you also a little Jeremiah. Isaiah says, I have appointed Cyrus. Look, you're here. Isaiah said, and he said, what, what am I supposed to do? God says, you're a great man. Isaiah 44. God says, you're a great man. And that you will let his people go back to Jerusalem. And Cyrus is going to look at it and go, well, who am I to but God? Okay, go home. And he sends them on home. This is after 70 years. And some choose to stay. You're exactly right. They've got a nice thing going on in Babylon. They, did, they, they like that garden thing. And they built their great houses. And they're going to stick around in there. You're right. Some of them chose to stay. To go back there now, because when they're going to rise, when they're going to come over the top there, and there is Mount Moriah, it's, it's still after 70 years, it's a smoking hole. The temple's gone, the old city has been destroyed, it, it's, a, it's flat, and they're going to have to completely rebuild it. And it was claimed by other people. Yeah, the Sumerians had kind of swooped in and started to claim this thing. So then we're going to have to fight those guys off. Because so, there's a whole other story that goes with there. But after 70 years, uh, you'll be able to, you'll go back. So, but you're going to have to plan for 70 years in captivity. Okay? Now, I find it fascinating in the middle of this, what words of comfort could the Lord speak to these people that are now in captivity? To help them feel more at peace with where they are. Well, some of the greatest words from the Lord, I think, are contained in this next part. I was loving what it said in verse 7. It says, seek the peace of the city. Yeah. I kind of got from that, look, look for the good in, in the situation. Yeah, because it's there. It's there. And now let me give you one more piece of comfort. If you want a... If you're called to speak in sacrament meeting, here's the talk I would start with. I would pull out Jeremiah. Verse 11. For I know the thoughts I think of you. You ever wondered what God thinks about? I know the thoughts I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. And I give unto you an expected end. I know where all of this leads. I have an expected end for you. I know the thoughts that I think toward, and they are thoughts of peace. Now think about it in your own captivities. If you got this kind of counsel from the Lord saying, I know what I think of you, and I have an expected end for you. Don't worry about it. Then shall ye call upon me, verse 12, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And then comes this counsel. And ye shall seek me and find me, and when ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you. That is just magnificent. And I will turn away your captivity. You will seek for me and find me. So, I think one of the, the great principles that I wanted to make sure that we covered today was that I think this is a true principle. 
This God, our God, is found by searchers and seekers. How do we know? When are we doing that? What is that? If, if, if this week you are searching and seeking, what would that look like? Because he says, if you'll do this, you'll find me. I'm going to try and find out what my calling is. What else? Word for word. Yeah, so we're going to find. So if you're. What's the difference between reading the scriptures and searching the scriptures? What's the difference between reading your chapter a day and seeking in the scriptures? Looking for answers. You're looking for answers. Remember, seeking and searching is looking. And the question is, what are you looking for? And also pondering about each of the passages and what it might mean to your life and listening to the Spirit. So that the Spirit is going to be your guide while you search and while you seek. I, I think about sometimes when people get, you know, somebody goes missing. And they call together all the searchers and seekers. And what are they doing as they go through the woods? Digging and turning stuff up and looking over things and calling out and parting and looking in every little hole. And, you know, and they're gathering other people. Have you found anything? No. Okay, y'all go around this side, you go around that side. Okay, yeah. We're gonna, did you find anything? No. Here's what I found. Okay. You get the, they're searching and seeking. What are we searching and seeking for if we're going to find the Lord? Answers. Just evidence of his hand and out of people's lives and realize that that could be Yeah. We're trying to find those things. His attributes and how he approaches challenges or problems. How did well for instance, let's take that let's say that you happen to be searching and seeking in Jeremiah. What are you searching and finding with Jeremiah? Mercy. Mercy. How did he solve things? How did he deal with things? What were his thoughts about? How was he delivered? So I think sometimes that searching and seeking says, if I'm going to be reading the Book of Mormon, how did Alma deal with his captivities? You know, how did, um, I don't know, how did Peter, James, and John in Acts, how did they deal with their captivities? But we are searching and seeking for answers, right? Yeah. And what they see is coincidence. You know what I'm saying? So it's also how you look for it. What are you looking for? You will find. What you're looking for. Isn't that crazy? We will find what we're looking for, right? If somebody wants to go after the prophet's character, you'll kind of find if you dig around, he's not perfect. Joseph Smith did have a temper. And from time to time, you know, he expressed that anger. Isn't that amazing? The only difference between what we have with Moses and we have with Joseph Smith is we have more eyewitnesses account of, of his everyday stuff, right? You know, if, if, we'd have, if, if we'd have actually got to know Moses, we might have found he was a procrastinator. Or there's sometimes he put stuff off. Or he just didn't. And then people would go, well, I can't believe in Moses because he wasn't perfect. We find what we see. Yeah. I mean, I'm 
Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the things that I've mentioned in a couple of firesides that I've done, is that when we, when we worry about the relationship between Joseph and Emma, especially when it comes to polygamy and stuff like that, the thing that comes through over and over and over in reading his writings is that Joseph loved Emma with his whole heart. He just did. He just, he, you read his letters and it just breathes a very loving, compassionate man. Well, again... Watch how he, Joseph handled his days of captivity. We have sections 121, 122, and 123 in his captivity. So the question is, who, if you feel like you're in captivity now, what are you seeking for? Yeah. We want freedom, right? And sometimes in our act of freedom, we become so busy in looking for a cure that we forget that it's in our captivity that we can find God. Again, if you go back to the New Testament, the lepers that were in captivity to leprosy, what did they want freedom from? Leprosy. And the Savior wanted for them what? Redemption. Salvation. Those that were blind that came to the Savior, they wanted freedom from captivity from blindness. And He said, no, I want to make you whole, meaning I want you saved. I want to bring you salvation. Sometimes when we're in our captivity, we're seeking for a solution for just that thing. And when we get to know the Lord, He says, I have a much grander plan for you. He always has a better plan. And it's far beyond the little minute thing. We just want to be able to pay our bills. I get it. I really do. But He wants to find peace for you and happiness and joy and the ability to serve. Well, I don't know. I just got to pay my mortgage. And I can't get past that captivity. And he says, I know the thoughts I think towards you and the expected end. And man, we have a hard time with that sometimes. Because we become so desperate and so scared in our moments of captivity. And I think that's part of what he was trying to communicate. We've been torn off from Jerusalem. We're stuck here in Babylon. And he says, find peace and know that I think about you. My thoughts are on you. Yeah, I know what I'm doing here. Well, I'm, what's my time right now? We were just telling them how wicked and awful they were, and if they didn't repent, they were going to take them captive. Yes. So in spite of their wicked, and that ought to be comforting, shouldn't it? In spite of their wickedness, he says, I still love you. And by the way, some of that I'm going to say that, that you had some pretty wicked leaders. The, the leaders in your watchtower, and we'll talk about watchtowers in a sec, didn't do a great job for you. President Uchtdorf. However, seeking God with all our hearts implies more than just simply offering a prayer or pronouncing a few words inviting God to be in our lives. Sometimes we're going to say, okay, I'm going to invite God to be in my life to pay my mortgage. Because <laughs> that really is where I'm hung up on at the moment. You know, I'm having a hard time. Or, I'm, or I'm, I'm hurting like crazy all weekend from a back pain. Heavenly Father, cure my back pain. We get stuck in those things. Uh, pronouncing a few words inviting God into our lives. We can make a great pr production of saying that we know God. We can proclaim publicly that we love Him. 
Nevertheless, if we don't obey him, all is in vain. For he saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. He is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We increase our love for Heavenly Father and demonstrate that love by aligning our thoughts and actions. Oh, hang on to that idea of thoughts. We're, getting, we're about to get it in Jeremiah 31. His pure love directs and encourages us to become more pure and holy. It inspires us to walk in righteousness, not out of fear or obligation, but out of an earnest desire to become even more like Him because we love Him. That's why we keep the commandments. My dear brothers and sisters, don't get discouraged if you stumble at times. Don't feel downcast or despair if you don't feel worthy to be a disciple of Christ at all times. The first step in walking in righteousness is simply to try we must try to believe. Try to learn of God. Read the scriptures. Study the words of the Latter-day Prophets. Choose to listen to the Father and do the things He asks of us. Try and keep on trying until that which seems difficult becomes possible. And that which seems possible becomes habit and the real part of you. I guess pretty well said. Just keep trying. Well, it gets to be hard because I'm in captivity. I know. I have an expected end for you. I will walk you out of captivity. Just keep trying. Hang in there. Okay? All right. All right. Now, that said, I want to uh, want you to hop over to uh, Jeremiah 31. Now... This is going to kill Cindy because she did all her work on Jeremiah 30. We run out of time. I'll let you do Jeremiah 30. <laughs> okay. I, I was reading through Jeremiah 31, and I suddenly realized that I had read these things before. Uh, and and it, it, it's, there are images that are painted, especially if you consider that Jeremiah and, and Lehi had to have known each other probably were in the same high priest quorum uh, and they were just and they gathered information from one another so listen listen through to the first part of Jeremiah 31 and see if this doesn't sound familiar Can I say one thing? <laughs> sure well I'm skipping all of 30 yes Sure. The coral horrors of the world. Well, yeah, but um, you take Lehi who's saying we have to get out of Jerusalem because they put Jeremiah in prison and you know basically now they're after me. We begin to know why they were after Lehi. It's because it was the false prophets who were saying, he's saying things, you know, I like what he's saying, let's get rid of him. Yeah. In fact, you know, that so often you look at a lot of the things that Joseph went through, the, the tar and feathering that happened with Joseph Smith at the John Johnson home was actually led by two ministers. And so often a lot of the persecution he got was from other ministers. 
Well, a lot of the, the persecution that Jeremiah got, he got from some of the false prophets running around Jerusalem. They're going, shut up, don't talk about this stuff. Because we're trying to make money off of this. Yeah. Our fa- our father ate some bad meat and here we are out in the wilderness. Yeah, he's nuts. Okay, so here comes Jeremiah thirty one. See if you've heard this story before. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, and I went, I went to cause him to rest. So, so we're going to talk about some people and start thinking about 1 Nephi 8 and, and the uh, Lehi's uh, tree of, of uh, life vision. Thus saith the Lord, the people that were left... They found grace. First of all, where are they? In the wilderness. Oh, okay. And I went to cause them, and I went to cause him to rest. I wanted to rest. Lehi says I was in the wilderness, and then the, the this being shows up and says, "Follow me." And he goes right from the wilderness into what? A waste. So when this great being shows up in 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 First Nephi eight. He's going to take him out of the wilderness into a way so it gets worse and it gets darker. It's fascinating. Okay, now. The Lord appeared unto me. So he's gone through this wilderness. The Lord appears unto him saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Remember, loving kindness was a word that was created by the by uh, biblical scholars. That Joseph did or that uh, end up in Jeremiah. And, and again, I will build thee, and build that thou shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. These are people in captivity, and they're dancing. Remember those stories about, uh, for those who have been on trek, and, and when, it, when it's cold at night, and they're on the wilderness and the plains, and it's cold and dark, and they finally get to their campfire at the end of the Pioneer Trek, and they get the fire going, what would they do? Bring out the violins, let's dance. Let's dance in the snow. We'll dance to stay warm. But these people that are in captivity are finding a place to dance and be merry. Well, I can't be. I'm, I'm oppressed by everything that's going on to me. I'm in captivity. Yes, go dance. That the hardest day of track that um, Friday or Saturday, no Friday, Friday. Thank you. <laughs> that evening was the funnest campfire we had ever had. I mean, all the kids and I were sitting around and we were laughing and telling jokes and just it was just delightful. Even though we'd had a really hard day. Yeah. Okay. Now keep this idea of dancing, especially if you're going to associate this with. I think it's another image of the tree of life thing, okay? Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria, which incidentally is Ephraim up there. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. So even though you've been out in the wilderness, you're going to make your way in the wilderness, 
up to this mountain and you're going to find these beautiful things planted there that will supply food for you. Okay? And you'll be able to eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, let us go up to Zion. How did, in the, in the, uh, in the dream of uh, Lehi's, how did Nephi and Sarah, how did they know where to go? Lehi. Lehi called out to them. It's over here. Oh yeah, okay, we're coming out of this. And they, they would move towards the voice. Okay? So we're, there's a watchman up there on Mount Ephraim that says, come here. When you're in the wilderness, when you're in captivity, come here, come follow. Follow me. Follow the voice. Okay? Our watchmen these days are Prophet. prophets and apostles that are saying, I know this sounds bad out there, but follow me. Come. Come on. Okay? And behold, I will bring them from the north country. Bring who from the north country? Who's in the north country? What captives? Judah? The ten lost tribes. Yes. Remember, the captives of Judah go off to Babylon. But where do the tribes that were up in Samaria and, and up along the north of Israel, where'd they go? North countries. They got dragged off. Okay? And we're finding some of them in Russia. Uh, for instance, they're finding they're getting patriarchal blessings that are listing all of these other tribes. They're up there. But symbolically, they also got hauled off away from home. Okay? And with them, the blind and the lame, the woman with the child, and her that travaileth together with child, a great company shall return thither. So you get this vision of, here's this prophet standing on this mountain, and he's saying, come, and you see this great multitude pressing forward. Okay? And they shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. And listen, I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, I, don't, I had never, until I read this yesterday, I had never considered this, that when we look at Lehi's vision of the tree of life, and you see the people pressing along the rod of iron, and they're working their way up towards the tree. Who would we say those people are? Us. This is all of us, right? This is the people on the earth. Have you ever considered that this is also a vision of the return of Israel home? Because that's what he's saying. This is Israel returning home. And they're going to follow this straight. Now, let me go back here now. Because, I don't, I don't know, if you picture, I have this tendency to, I have to see things visually. If you picture the tree of life, and there's the tree, and here's the rod of iron, and the people are following along the rod of iron, what do they look like? If you paint, if you paint a picture in your head of the people working their way along the rod of iron, what do they look like? They look what? Poor. They're dedicated. Do you see them as happy or are they just kind of having to trudge along and make their way through the mists and 
you know, they're just kind of oppressed and they're working their way and they're just kind of like handcarts, you know, and they're just struggling to get there. Hmm? I would say there's both. Yes. Absolutely. Go go back to verse 4. I will build thee and they shall be built and they shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Can you ever, can you picture these guys following the rod of iron that some are going to be weeping and they're clinging. And we know the ones that cling in that, in that vision uh, actually end up getting to the tree and letting go and going away. But those that follow it steadfastly this says that there's a group here that they're following the rod along the straightway. What are they doing? They're dancing. They're dancing. <laughs> they can see where they're going. Life is good. They're having a good time. Well, but they're in captivity. They're not at the tree yet. I know, but we're moving forward and we are rejoicing as we're moving. We're rejoicing as we follow the rod. I don't, I've never pictured that. I always picture kind of this downtrodden group just working their way Across. Yeah. Yeah. And they only see darkness. They're living these wonderful food, and it tastes bitter. And they they don't want to see what everyone else sees. And I feel like that can be paralleled with this quite easily, where you're holding onto the rod, and it's whether you choose to be mentally captive or not, whether your surroundings are in captivity or perfect. Perfect. Because isn't that true? Because and I like your term um, mentally captive. Because at the end of the day, isn't that... How about those times that we are spiritually captive? Or that we are emotionally captive? And most of the captivity is in our own beliefs. That's why I love that, yes, there are going to be some that are going to come forward with weeping. But there are another group following this, coming out of captivity and following the rod, that are doing this rejoicing and dancing. Well, that's, that's really comforting. That is really comforting. How often, if you watch people come into sacrament meeting, you see people coming in here kind of weeping and downcast? <laughs> you might. How many times are our teenagers walking in? Oh, here we go, three hours. Or trying to get littles ready for church. Or trying to get little people. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's like those moments when we would like get our, our kids ready and there would be like great weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in the car and they're just, you know, sit down and shut up and put your... Shoes on, and then we get to the church, and it's like, "Hello, yes, we're wonderful." I'm glad on this Sabbath day to meet you too. Happy Sabbath to you, you know. Want to, and that's not a reason 
we could take for granted that this is a pretty nice place. I think for a lot of investigators that come to the church and they look around, and our kids are given talks, you know, and, and they look around and their family life isn't matching what they're seeing from these Mormons here, and they begin to wonder if they'll ever be able to match it. Okay? All right, I just thought that was fascinating. It gives me a little different image, and I love the fact that the image is, is created again of these people moving forward that are going to follow this straight way along the rivers uh, to get there. And basically he's saying, I have two groups of people that have been scattered. There's Judah, and they are sitting off in Babylon. And then I have Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, and they have been scattered off into the north countries. And I will bring them both home. Alright, so the time we've got remaining. Now let's Let's now look at uh, Jeremiah 31. Let's see. Yeah, here we go. By the way, he does throw this little quote in. I, I like this. In talking to Ephraim. And who's Ephraim? The ten tribes, right? Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For I have spake against him. I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy on him, saith the Lord. Isn't that nice? Even though I'm 22, thou backsliding daughter. <laughs> okay, now. Behold, the day shall come. And this is where you get kind of the optimism at the end of Jeremiah. It just looks like we've gone through gloom and gloom and struggle and wickedness and badness and captivity and all that kind of stuff. And then, as it is with Isaiah, you get to the end of this, and here comes the breathings of the Lord who loves them and is going to bring them home. And he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah, I will make a covenant with both. He's not just repeating this. House of Israel, ten tribes, Judah. Okay? A new covenant. Now, listen close. Not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the hand of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, though I was a husband unto them. Where did the Lord make this where did he make the old covenant with Israel? Uh, wasn't then. With Moses where? At Mount Sinai. Now, remember again that when Moses goes up on the mount, he gets out of the mount, he's going to get something called the new and everlasting covenant. We'll talk about that in a sec. He's going to get this new covenant that includes a lot of the blessings of the temple and things that we have. He's going to come down off of the mountain, and what's he going to see? All the wickedness, and that they've made a golden calf and all that, and he's going to destroy the, the things that were written about the new and everlasting covenant. He's going to go back up, and he's going to come down with the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is going to be carved on what? Tablets 
of stone. Now, listen to what he's going to say. In this day, in the last days, meaning now, I will make a new covenant with you, not according to the covenant I made with those fathers, 33, but this shall be the covenant that I make unto the house of Israel. After these days, saith the Lord, I will put the law on on tablets of stone. No. Where does he put the new covenant? On our, yes, on our inward parts and write it in their hearts. Why did he use stone tablets to carve the law of Moses? Because their hearts were stone. That's why. Because what he wants to do, and see, if we hop over to Hebrews 8 for a second, Paul's going to say this. In verse 8 of, of Hebrews, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to them. He's going to say it again. For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel, and I will put the laws. And then he changes it just a little bit. That's why I wanted to show you both. I will, I will put the laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. Now again, remember, we did get an image of this during, during uh, captivity in, in Egypt, right? When, when the destroying angel comes and, and it's Passover night and they're going to kill the Paschal lamb and where do they take the blood? And they're going to take the blood from the Paschal lamb and put it where? On the lentils of the door. And symbolically that means we are to take the blood of the lamb and put it where? On our hearts. Our, our hearts are the doorway to our soul. And in a sense when we take the, the idea behind that blood on the doorpost is, is it's his blood on our doorpost of our heart. And that's what he's saying. I will write my law not on tablets of stone, because that's where you were. In this new covenant I will make with you in the future, I will write it in your hearts and in your minds. I will tell you in your minds and in your heart by the Holy Ghost which will come upon you and shall dwell in your hearts. How does it get written in our hearts? By the Holy Ghost who carves it into us and transforms us and changes us. Does that that make sense? Okay. And I will be to them a God and they shall be unto me a people. Okay. Well, this has been one of those hardest things for Israel then and now to, to uncover is the fact that There was a covenant in place called the Law of Moses. And it told them what to do and how to do it. And under Josiah, they got really strict about what it is that they were supposed to do. And he's going to come along and say, I, in those last days, I will write another covenant. It will, it will secede, supersede, thank you, the Law of Moses. And it will be the new and everlasting covenant. President, what's the new and everlasting covenant? The potential of a family being together forever and the covenant 
covenants that we make to have that come to pass. Yeah. And the new and everlasting covenant encompasses all of those ordinances and everything that we take on, those promises that we make, that will then seal our families together for eternity. And, and under the law of Moses, just the priest made those covenants yeah. on behalf of the people. And under the new and everlasting covenant, all of us as individuals have the opportunity to make yeah, we are all priests and priestesses under under the, the new and everlasting covenant. Everybody that's worthy is welcome to the temple to participate. And in a sense, we all get to walk into the Holy of Holies where only the priests got to do it before. Why? Because the people in, in, the, under the, in Israel at Mount Sinai says we don't want to go into the presence of God. When we, when we go into the temple today, it's with a desire that we want to do everything possible so that we can be admitted into the presence of God. That's the goal. And we can't do that unless we've taken on the new and everlasting covenant. And it's different from the law of Moses. Isn't that awesome? That's basically what it is that he's saying. All right. Um, yeah. has always had it. Did Enoch have this? Yes. Did, did Noah have it? Yes. Did Abraham have it? Yes. But every time there's a new dispensation, it has to be remade anew again. Okay? But it is everlasting. The ordinances are the same. Great point. Okay. Uh, kind of in, in closing then, let, let me just suggest this. I think part of what comes out of here is you is you watch this group of people that are going to go rolling into captivity, but the Lord's eyes are all on them. And one of the things that he's going to have them learn while they're in captivity is I need you to search me out and seek me out. And so here's my challenge for the, the week. In our scripture reading, rather than if we're just kind of reading a chapter a day or reading a couple of verses a day, or if we're not reading, let us start. And that is that in our reading, let us stop reading. Let us start searching. Rather than trying to get through a chapter, how about we seek? And that may mean a single verse. And if you're going to seek that and search that for about 15-20 minutes, you will find Him. If we're just trying to get through a chapter to check it off, 
we will have missed the essence of what it is that he's trying to teach us. Because while we're in captivity, and make no mistake about it, mortality with all of its blessings is also a captivity. We are separated from our Father. We are separated from all that we were. Uh, and we are here trying to find our way back in the wilderness. Well, to do that, never stop seeking and never stop searching. And to do that, we can kind of renew our covenants. And one of the best places to do that is obviously in the temple. So, uh, I bury my testimony that, uh, that these, these kind of things, especially go back and read uh, 31 and all the blessings and promises that are associated with the covenant. Uh, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.